0: Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537 is the voicemail number. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 9 You might want to tuck in all that pretty hair, light skin. Breeze felt someone tug her long ponytail as she sat on the bench during recreation hour. She turned to find two Hispanic women standing behind her. You're new booty in here. There's plenty of bitches in here that'll chop that shit off and flex on you with your own shit. You might want to try a little harder not to look so pampered in this motherfucker. People might think you think you're better than them. You know, one of them bougie hoes. Ain't no room for that in here. We all on the same level, the woman said. I'm not, I don't think, I'm just minding my own business, Breeze said, stumbling over her response as she tried to decide how to approach these women. Mm Mm-hmm, the woman said as she sat down. That's even worse. Nobody walks around here alone. You link up with your people. After a while, family don't visit no more. The people who look like you, talk like you, come from where you come from, we become your new family. I'm not into the whole gang thing, Breeze replied. I don't want no problems. I'm just doing my time. We all just doing our time, and it's not about gangs. It's about heritage, mommy. The only color that matters is the color of your skin. You can walk around here and alienate yourself if you want, but that makes you an easy mark. What you in here for? Bullshit, Breeze responded. She didn't want to give more information about herself than what was needed. The woman smirked. What's your name? Breeze. You're not Breeze in here. What's your last name? The woman shot back. I'm Sanchez. This is Rezzy. Breeze looked at the other woman. Rezzy? Breeze asked. Short for Perez. We stick together in here, Sanchez stated. So, who the fuck are you? Diamond, Breeze responded. Well, Diamond, tuck that hair and let me know if you need anything, Sanchez said as she stood and walked across the yard with Rezzy right by her side. Is Breeze, like, does she look Latina? Like, like, Latinx? Like, is that what's happening here? Because... Just kind of, I just thought she looked like black because I don't know why. Are y'all saying that the men in the family are, I guess they're light skin and Adonis gods and all that kind of stuff. And then Carter's black because his dad is black and his mom is black, but she looks like her mom, but isn't her mom Dominican? Like, wait, what? You know, I'm going to go all the way back to the first book because I can do that. Um, He stared into his wife's green eyes and admired her long, flowing jet black hair. Taryn, his wife, was a full-blooded Dominican and could have easily been mistaken for a top model. Carter then glanced over to his daughter, Breeze, the spitting image of her mother and also his baby girl. At age 19, she was beautiful, intelligent, and being mixed with black and Dominican gave her a goddess look. Again, fuck, fuck. She had long, thick hair with green eyes, which made her every man's desire and every woman's envy. God damn it. I fucking hate this book. Okay, so Dominican. Yeah. So I I just looked it up to make sure I was right. I I went to Google and looked at pictures. And a lot of Latinx folks and a lot of black folks. Somebody tried to plug white people into the pictures too like you could click on a tab that said white like that is the most Karen ass shit I've ever seen in my entire life like we're gonna put ourselves everywhere but that was really white folks mindsets happy black history month so she could have been either I guess she could have been black presenting Or she could have been Latinx presenting depending on what her mom looked like. Because they said that she looked just like her mom even though her dad is black. And so they wanted her to look Latin, I guess. But they didn't really state it until now. But then again, her grandfather's name is Estes. So it is clear that her mom was on the Latinx side. (sighs) I don't know. So she got her mom's looks and her dad's money, I guess, and didn't look in no ways black because the black folks were like, "Yo, Latins, those, the Latinx folks, that's your homie right there." I just always thought that she looked, I, in my mind, I just pictured her as black because I never thought about anything else. It's a book written by black people. I wouldn't have thought that they would have made somebody who in a book written by black folks about black folks, you would have written somebody who was able to pass unless that's just what you like internalized racism. Like you want to be able to look like this with the green eyes and everything. I don't know. I don't know. Now I'm overthinking it. Fuck it. (sighs) What the hell was that? Breeze whispered to herself. I don't, I don't fucking know, Breeze. Like, I didn't know you were reading me while I was reading you. That's my fault. What the hell was that? Breeze whispered to herself as she watched him stroll away. Breeze looked around, noticing that all the inmates were clicked up. Everyone belonged somewhere except for Breeze. She was one of the only women sitting alone. If you weren't clicked up, you were singled out. And with this many women in one place, jealousy quickly surfaced. Breeze's silence came off as arrogance, and she was slowly becoming a target. Of course she was. Suddenly, it felt like malicious stares were aimed her way. She didn't know if she had been too naive and missed them before, but now that she was aware, an uneasiness settled in her stomach. She was like a sheep amongst wolves. Bree stood and tucked her ponytail inside her shirt before making her way back to her cell. At least inside there, she only had to battle her thoughts. Out on the yard, she was exposed to danger. Anyone could get to her from any angle, and the problem was she didn't know exactly who her enemy was. In that moment, Breeze hated that she was so delicate. She hadn't been in one single fight growing up. Her father's army of goons always handled her problems. She had been the only kid throughout school to be escorted each morning by armed men for her protection, and those same armed men would pick her up afterwards. She had gotten so used to it that she never thought the day would come when she would need to be her own protection. The thought scared her, because she didn't know she had it in her. As she held her bulging belly, she knew that she had more to fight for than just herself, but what could she do in her current state? I'm nine months pregnant and helpless in here. Bree sauntered back to her bunk, and as she passed the TV room, she paused. She noticed Sanchez and Rezzy sitting with four other Hispanic women inside. A part of her wanted to go to them and ask for protection. Life inside would be a lot less lonely with allies but Breeze had been taught to live a certain way. Her blood had been her team for as long as she could remember. She wasn't a girl who had friends, or ran in a crew of women that was placed together for superficial commonalities like looks or money. Her crew had been her family. Linking up with these women would feel different because she knew at the end of the day, none of them would hold her down like family. Besides, nothing in prison came at a fair price. She didn't know how expensive the price may be, Accepting protection from the wrong people could cost her in the end, so she would hold herself down as long as possible to avoid owing a debt. She was learning slowly but surely that nothing was free on the inside. If you received something, there was an expectation of repayment, and the exchange wasn't always equal. The most manipulative usually came out on top. It was like a prison stock market. Deals were made every day. The last thing Breeze needed was to incur a debt with the wrong person inside. That could be deadlier than having nobody to watch her back at all. Sanchez looked up and Breeze briefly locked eyes with her. In the split second they stared at each other, a million things crossed Breeze's mind. She lowered her gaze and hurried away, knowing that the day would come when she would cross Sanchez's path again. She just didn't know she would be a friend or an enemy. A million things crossed her mind in a split second? Word? Nah, I just tried it. In a split second? So that's a second split in half. So that's 0.5 seconds. Nah, not a million things. Maybe half of a thing. A, that's really it. (laughs) Also, that's the whole chapter for Breeze. They gave her literally seven minutes. Everybody else is getting 41 minute chapters. The guys are getting 41 minute chapters. Moe's getting 25 minute chapters. And she gets seven. Chapter 10. Carter waited patiently in the bushes, crouched down out of sight. The sun was just rising and provided a faint light as he waited in stealth. He then heard the ruffling of the bushes as two people were having a conversation. The voices got clearer as they got closer. Carter looked down at the gun in his hand that once belonged to Ghost. He watched closely as Dr. Ishbon and another scientist appeared at the door to the lab that was hidden in the woods. They had no idea that Carter was waiting in the cut for them. They never saw him rise from the bushes and creep up behind them. Carter pressed the gun directly to the back of Dr. Ishbon's head, making him cringe with fear. The other doctor yelled in terror. Almost immediately, Carter removed the gun from the back of Dr. Ishbon's head and pressed it to the forehead of the other man. Quiet down, my man, Carter said calmly as he winked at him. The man threw up his hands, and his lips were zipped closed in sheer fear. He wouldn't dare make another sound, especially staring down the barrel of a chrome 45 caliber pistol. Inari came from the side of the building, slowly clapping sarcastically. Young nigga got some scrap in him, she said, looking at Carter and smiling. She hadn't done any gangster shit in years and she felt right at home during this ambush. I mean, she stabbed up ghosts. Is that gangster enough for you? How gangster do you want it? Punching the code, Carter said, as he focuses attention back on Dr. Ishbon. I mean, pulling a gun on two guys unaware that are scientists and ain't about that life ain't that gangster? That's just getting the drop on somebody. It's not gangster. Like, what? They're scientists. Okay. Punching the code, Carter said, as he focuses attention back on Dr. Ishbon. Carter nudged him with his free hand, pushing him towards the keypad. Go ahead, put the code in, or one of these bullets is going to park in the back of your head, playboy, Carter said, still using a calm, even tone. Dr. Ishbaum was shaking like a leaf in autumn. Bars! As he held his hands up and scooted to the keypad. His hand was shaking vigorously. He could barely punch in the correct numbers. After a failed first attempt, the low buzz sounded signaling that the wrong code had been entered. Calm down. Take your time and punch in punching the code. No one will be hurt if you do as I say. You have my word on that, Carter said, giving the scientists a brief moment of optimism. Dr. Ishbon pushed the numbers in, and moments later, the door opened. Carter swiftly ushered the scientists in and knew that they had to get down to business before the other scientists came in for the day. They also had to get in and out before a ghost's body was found. Let's go, Carter said as they moved swiftly through the corridor, making their way to the back of the lab. Inari had instructed Carter that they would need the female and male seed of the flower, and once they had possession of that, they could take it back to the States and duplicate it and start their own harvest. They also needed all the notes and trial studies that had been done in the drug. This would give them everything they need to recreate the drug and begin their takeover. So y'all were just now talking about conspiracy theories, and this is why you kill ghosts and and not conspiracy theories, but Reaganomics and the government's involvement in drugs and how the crack game got started in the 80s and how black men, the backbone of the family, uh, were taken away from their families and put to jail and then the... And then how the 13th Amendment fucked it up the game for everybody. And low-level dealers are going to jail while the rich white people are up in power. And now y'all are literally stealing the flowers so you can make the drugs for yourselves. So y'all saw that this was crack like it was back in the 90s. And y'all got mad, or in the 80s, sorry. And y'all got mad and killed ghosts. And now y'all are making crack. Then why are y'all mad? I still don't get it. I don't get the angst. Like y'all are, were y'all just planning on taking it because you saw that it was a lucrative thing? Or were y'all planning on burning it? You're not planning on burning it because this gave them everything they would need to recreate the drug and begin their takeover. What exactly is the plan here? I don't, I don't, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. I need the male and female strand of the Reby and I need it now, Carter said as he continued to hold them at gunpoint. Anari brushed past, heading directly to the room where the files were held. She was looking for files to take back to her scientists. She disappeared to the back and Carter followed Dr. Ishbon to the spot where they kept the seeds. He did exactly what was asked of him and after studying the labels on the small compact pouches, he gave Carter the seeds. Carter quickly snatched them and placed them into his pocket. At that moment, Anari came from the back with a few files. Got him, she yelled as she came out of the back. Carter glanced at her and then focused back on the scientists. Carter then hogtied the scientists with the ties they had gotten from Ghostvia. Carter secured the ties and let the two men squirming on the ground as they exited the lab with everything they needed to relocate the entire operation and start from scratch. However, this time it will be with their own scientists and their own game plan. They had devised this plan in the wee hours of the night and in the company of Ghost's dead body. They were on their way back home with the keys to the future. Anari and Carter exited the property without any problems and without anyone knowing what their plans were. They had a game plan to flood the streets with this new drug, but instead of following the original plan the had presented, they decided to do the opposite and put it in the suburbs of America. Pills were the new crack, and they had the best illegal pill known to mankind. It was a new day and the beginning of a new era. Inari set up transportation and then set up Carter with fake documents to get him back into the States, undetected. Carter soon found out that Inari was shaping out to be most likely the most resourceful partner he had ever had. She was well-connected and well-respected. Y'all know black folks live in the suburbs too, right? Like, y'all are acting like y'all about to just hit white folks. Like, this isn't going to affect anybody else or trickle down. Like i don't know i don't know this is this this stupid carter's main goal was to get back home and see what was the problem with his family the fact that breeze was unreachable had him worried he still hadn't heard from breeze and was determined to get to his family even if it cost him his freedom he was a wanted man back in the states but he didn't care at this point he was prepared to go out swinging however he had to find out what was wrong Breeze was a safety net, and with her not responding, it sent his entire world into a frenzy. He was determined to get back home and get to the bottom of things. He also knew that to make power moves, he had to be in a position of power, which meant being financially ready for anything. He wasn't as wealthy as he had been previous to the federal government being on his tail. He knew that this move with Inari would strengthen his financial health, which would enable him to do more. He was about to step back into the game, two feet in. All gas and no brakes. Carter's heart pumped furiously as he walked through customs with his phony paperwork. It was a week after they killed ghosts and they were heading back into the United States. They had to stay in the country for a few days so Inari's connections could send Carter over his fake documents. In the meantime, Inari and Carter were making calls setting up a pipeline and setting up shop for their new drug. The plan was for them to be up and running within a month, and the drug Reby would make its street debut. The crowded customs terminal was hot, muggy, and loud from all the various conversations and movement going on. People hastily pulled their luggage and speed walked through the terminal, everyone having their own agenda. Police were scattered throughout the place, some walking canines, letting them sniff their way about and around. They were obviously looking for drug traffickers or anything out of the norm. Little did they know, they had two of the biggest ones in America's history passing through. Carter casually looked around, trying to blend in as best he could. He wore cheap clothes and had a camera around his neck. The straw hat that sat on top of his head was far from his style. However, he needed to look as much like a tourist as possible. The passport said his name was Dean Griswold. The fuck? Griswold? You're telling me that Carter, a black dude, has the same last name as a dude from National Lampoon's Vacation? Dean Griswold. Sheesh. But little did they know, he was one of the FBI's most wanted. He watched the Denari slid through customs without a problem. She looked back at him and quickly moved her focus past him not wanting to give any indication that they were together. Carter approached the officer who was checking people's documentation and his heart began to pump faster and faster the closer he got. Carter grimaced as he felt the sharp pain shoot through his heart and stopped walking momentarily as he squinted his eyes, hoping that the pain would subside. Are you okay, sir? The police officer asked as he frowned in concern. Yes, I'm fine. Too much spicy Indian food, Carter said as he felt the pain going away. He smiled and passed the officer the fraudulent passport. The officer held it up and put it next to Carter's face, and his eyes went from the passport to Carter's face, back and forth. He studied closely, and Carter tried his best to look calm and unbothered, even though he was growing uncomfortable. After a few seconds of examining, the officer smiled and gave Carter his documents. Come again, the man said as he smiled. Carter quickly passed through and saw Nari waiting on the other side. They were scheduled to be on a commercial flight back to the States, and it was the safest option. Inari explained that the Border Patrol had been very leery of private jets coming into the U.S., so she suggested that they try and blend in with the crowd and be as normal as possible. Within an hour, they were on a still bird in the sky headed back to their home, the streets. So, Millie and Brick and anybody else who was still back on the island... Just, they were just like, you know what, fuck them. We ain't telling them nothing about what we found out. We just gonna dip out with this stuff. And Godspeed to them. Like, them niggas ain't gonna be murdered or examined or something because Ghost is dead. These two scientists are tied up. Some of the flowers, for the, some of the seeds for Reby are gone. And two people are gone with them. Do y'all know anything? No? Alright, until somebody tells me what happened, we're going to shoot this person first and move our way down the line. I've never seen anything like this in all my years, the young scientist said as he held up the test tube and shook the milky contents around. Anari looked on as she crossed her arms in front of her. She listened closely as the scientist stood there in disbelief. This substance has a melting point substantially higher than the purest form of cocaine documented here in the U.S., Cocaine melts at about 208 degrees Fahrenheit. This reeby, once in powder form, is at about 230. You, my friend, have a monster. Okay, talk so I can fucking understand you, Anari said as she tried to get a better understanding. That's redundant, right? Basically, you have the raw shit that this country has ever seen. This can get stepped on five times and still have the same potency as the highest grade of drug on the streets, the scientist said, stripping away all the scientific terms and getting straight to the point. Honori smiled and saw dollar signs. She was about to set up shop in different suburbs across the nation and retire at the top of her game. By the time the feds got a whiff of what she was doing, she would be retired. The plan was coming along nicely. Carter sat in his car and watched closely, as he had been doing every day for a week straight. There was no sign of Breeze or the kids. He continued to call, but he always got the same result. Voicemail. He didn't know where to start. He was lost and his faith was slipping away. He felt the burner phone buzz in his lap and looked down, seeing that it was a private investigator that Inari had plugged him with. He hired him to help him find his family and make sense of it all. He looked at the phone screen and it simply read, Meet me at same spot. I have an update for you. Carter responded back immediately, texting on way. You could have put my, or you could have put OMW. You didn't have to say on way, like you're being charged per text message. This ain't 1999, my nigga, like seriously. Yes, we used to get charged per text message, like it was crazy. Some of y'all might still, I don't know. I just, at this juncture, I, I feel like, a, a diamond. I just figure everybody has unlimited data and text. But if you don't, get off that Gettro PCS, okay? It's not for you. It's a trap. He quickly started up the car and headed towards a small coffee shop just outside Dade County. Carter set up the place as a meeting spot because I had no cameras and had relatively low traffic. Inari had connected him with one of the most respected PIs in the country. He was a brown bag customer meaning his services were only to be paid in paper bags, no trace. Carter loved that business model, seeing that it fit his circumstances perfectly. He headed onto the freeway and rolled down the window to feel some of that fresh Miami air. It had been a long time since he had been in his old stomping grounds, and he had to feel that salty, humid air as he zoomed down the interstate. He took a deep breath and inhaled as he enjoyed the scenery, and tall palm trees hovered over the highway. They really just, they really just going to act like Zaire doesn't exist, huh? They, they, I just realized that like this, like three episodes later that they said that he, when he shot himself in the head, he got amnesia and now he forgot all about Breeze and Breeze was like, rather than standing by him, she was going to get the divorce sped up because she wasn't going into jail with the name of a snitch. And that was it for Zaire. Like, I, that just dawned on me. Like, the nigga's still alive, but he don't remember nobody, so really he's dead. Okay. Okay, sorry. I beat this highway up. Carter thought to himself with a smirk as he thought about the cartel days and how much weight he used to move up and down the interstate. He thought back to the first day that he stepped foot in Miami, and that was to see the seat of father he had never known. He met his father at his funeral, and that image always stuck with him. It was a day to change his life forever, and he found out that he had brothers and a sister. It was a day that he was thrust into a position he wasn't ready for. Although Carter didn't truly know if that day changed his life for better or worse, he understood that it started a roller coaster ride that he couldn't have imagined. A tear dropped down his cheek as he thought about the life he had created for himself. He had never imagined that he would have made millions and owned casinos in Vegas. He also never imagined being on the FBI's most wanted list or going to war with some of the most powerful men in the country. It was all surreal to him. He wiped away the tear. The single tear. That's all you get here from Carter, ladies and gentlemen. One thug tear. He wiped away the tear and looked down at his phone, which was buzzing. It was from a blocked number and he quickly picked it up. Hello, he said with optimism that it would be Breeze. He longed to find her so he could reunite with his only son. Every moment away from him broke his heart, and he knew how it felt to not have your father around while growing up. It pained him, but he knew that he was continuing the cycle that he vowed to break. Yo, we got one, Anari said calmly as she hinted about what the scientist had explained to her. Carter closed his eyes in disappointment. Inari wasn't the voice he wanted to hear. Oh, yeah, he said as he gathered his composure. Yeah, it's so potent, we can moonwalk all over this motherfucker, she said with the utmost confidence. So I guess the oh, yeah, that he said should have had a question mark, but they put a comma. Even though he wasn't saying anything after that. Like if you have quotations and okay, so quotation marks. And then a comma is when you are starting a sentence and you want to explain who's saying something and then you finish the sentence off in another group of quotations and then you put the period. For example, sometimes, Derek said, people actually remember the rules of grammar and the rules of diction and they put it to use in their books. Other times, he continued. They do it like the cartel. So when he said, oh, yeah, it was a question mark because that was the whole sentence. There was nothing behind it. He didn't say anything else. Oh, yeah, he said as he gathered his composure. Yeah, it's so potent. We can moonwalk all over this motherfucker. She said with the utmost confidence. Sounds like we on to something then Carter said as he turned the wheel to get off on his exit. No doubt, but dig this. I think we need to expand and see if some of my old friends want in. I have some heavy hitters out in the Dominican Republic. This is how Estes is going to get in there. Okay, cool. We're, we're Avengers assemble. symbol. <laughs> I can see this being worldwide rather than just here. I really think I should set up a meeting. You game? She asked as she walked into her condominium, undressing herself. Although Inari was in her 40s, her body was still toned. God damn. Nigga, what the fuck do you think the 40s are? Like, what? Okay. Although Inari was in her 40s, her body was still toned. She taught business as she locked eyes with her husband, who was waiting for her naked with an erection in his hand. She hadn't had any dick in weeks and had instructed him to get ready right before she got on the phone. I'm game. Set it up, Carter confirmed just before he closed his phone and pulled into the small coffee shop just off the freeway. Anari, on the other hand, ended the call but started her ride on the dick of Vaughn, her husband, because, you know, somehow they gotta fit sex somewhere into this book. It's 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 urban fiction. Urban fiction is sex, money, and murder, right? That's the rules? She kissed him passionately and whispered about how much she loved him in between the wet, sloppy kisses. He gripped her buttocks and squeezed them as he slowly guided her up and down on his shaft. Not even 30 seconds into the love-making session, Inari exploded all over his pole, and her body quivered from the orgasm and tingling throughout her body. She smiled and stopped grinding, and rested her head on his shoulder. "'I'm so sorry,' she said. "'You ain't shit,' he said while smiling. "'I know,' she said as they both burst into laughter. "'Years of marriage have made them best friends, and they were both glad that she was back home. Wait. What?' So because she came, she was like, I'm done. Or because she came, they stopped. What? I don't, what? Multiple orgasms can be had. What? I don't get it. I don't understand this. Like, why did she apologize for having an orgasm that early on? And why did he say you ain't shit? Because she had an orgasm that early on. Like, you act like it's, see, men in their 40s. Yeah, we have an orgasm. It might be kind of hard to press on. Me, depending on the situation, can keep going. Because, you know, sometimes you feel like a nut. Sometimes you don't. And I'm sure there's other folks who can do that same thing. But women can literally have multiple orgasms within one single session and not stop. So why they stop? why do you even make this into a scene? 30 seconds of laughter. Like, why did you do this? I don't know. Y'all just sound dumb. Real bad. Like, she had an orgasm and stopped grinding and rested her head on his shoulder. Like, what? Her body cleared from the orgasm. She's literally on top of him. She could just keep grinding her way into oblivion. Like, there could be 16, 17 different squirt sessions popping off right now. Like, what are we doing? I don't know. So, your nephew seems to have gotten himself in a bit of trouble, the private investigator said as He slid the court documents across the table, detailing the assault that Mo was charged with. Damn, Carter says. He picked up the paper and studied it. They have him locked up in juvie as of now, and it doesn't seem like he's getting out anytime soon. He's declared a ward of the state, the man explained. The P.I. reached into his briefcase and pulled out another court document, with a picture clipped to its right corner. It was a small photo of Breeze's mugshot. The fuck is this? Carter asked as he felt like an apple was in his throat when he tried to swallow. Carter asked as he felt like an apple was in his throat when he tried to swallow. I feel like they should have just taken the ass out of that and just said, what the fuck is this? Carter asked. He felt like an apple was in his throat when he tried to swallow. Yep, fixed it. Y'all should really hire me. Like, I'm still going to make fun of y'all. But hire me. This This ain't hard. She was picked up for tax evasion. She's in a federal prison serving her time now, he explained as he pointed out her charges on the paper. Carter's head dropped as he felt despair, thinking about where his baby boy was. What about my boy? What about CJ? Carter asked. He looked at the man sitting across from him in desperation. That's the thing. Nobody can locate him. He's listed as a runaway, the man explained. Wait, what? A runaway? Carter said as he tried his best to take in all the information. Yes, the last known place of residency was with the woman that worked for the state as a social worker. He then reached into the bag and pulled out a piece of paper. Here's her last known address, number, and address of her workplace. This should be a good place to start, he said as he got up and extended his hand. I hope this helped. Yeah, Carter said half-heartedly as he tried to wrap his mind around what was going on. He shook the man's hand and reached into his pockets to pull out the money wrapped in the brown paper bag, but the man quickly signaled for him to stop. No worries. "'Inari's taking care of me already.' "'Good day, sir,' he said just before he walked away and out of the cafe, "'leaving Carter there with a table full of papers.' Carter had to think wisely before he approached the lady, knowing that she was a government employee. However, he was on a mission to find his son, and even if he had to be on the run with him, so be it. But first, he had a trip to the Dominican Republic to take. He had to get his ducks in a row so he could knock them down. First, establish a money flow, get his son, and approach the DA with the threat of blackmail. He decided to use his trip to the Dominican as his planning period, and on their return, he would go hard and get his family back once and for all. Chapter 11 CJ was silent as he sat in the back of the tinted Mercedes next to Estes as they were driven through the streets of Santo Domingo. As CJ looked outside his window, he saw the poverty that had taken hold of the people who lived there. Not everyone lived like Estes, and CJ wondered how Estes had gotten rich while the rest of the people in his native country seemed to be starving. A tense knot settled in his stomach, and his chest ached from the anxiety of what was waiting for him ahead. He wasn't afraid of the fight to come, but the possibility of losing and getting further on Estes's bad side worried him. There was money on the line, and CJ didn't want to disappoint. He stayed silent for the entire drive, and when they pulled up to an old tobacco factory, he was surprised at how big it was. He had pictured a small fight with small fuss, just some old men who had too much money who had created a small ring. This was the size of an arena. The building had closed long ago, yet the scent of tobacco leaves still filled the air. Its broken windows and rusting exterior made the place a perfect location to conduct dirty business. I used to come here as a boy. My papa threw me in this ring when I was 10 years old. Whether I won or lost, I built character over the years I fought here, Estes reminisced. First rule of fight clubs, you don't talk about fight club, Estes, what the fuck? CJ didn't respond as the car rolled to a stop. He stepped out and looked at the tall building. Intimidation filled him, but he tried hard not to show it. He followed Estes inside, stomach queasy and legs shaky. It looked like a coliseum inside. The middle of the factory had been barricaded off, forming an arena. Men stood on the outside of the barricade, boisterously cheering as two young boys went to war on the inside. CJ fell sick to his stomach as he watched the boys tear each other apart. This wasn't the type of fighting CJ had in mind. There was no gloves, no referees, no rules, just savagery. You're up next, Estes said. The words rolled off his tongue so casually that CJ looked at him in shock. Put your game face on, kid. You go out there looking like you want to run home to your mommy, and you're going to be swallowing your teeth, Estes said. He bent down and stared CJ straight in the eye. You aren't ever in that pit with anyone that's better than you. You don't fear any man. Your enemy bleeds just like you bleed. That feeling in your heart, making you feel like you want to run, your opponent feels that too. That's not fear. That's fuel. You use that, Esther said. C.J. nodded and gritted his teeth as Estes pushed him into the pit. Two men carried the losing boy out of the pit as the winner walked off. C.J.'s eyes widened as they carried the loser right by him. The boy moaned, barely conscious, his face bloody to the point of unrecognition. C.J. looked up as the Dominican boy stepped into the pit. He was taller than C.J. and about 20 pounds heavier. The look in his eyes held no fear. A loud bell rang and the boy charged CJ, who dodged the first punch and then the second, only frustrating his opponent. CJ was swift. Stop running, a voice shouted from the crowd. The whoops and hollers only seemed to incite the kid. His fists might not have been connecting, but the wind that came behind them was so strong that CJ could almost feel the knockout coming. CJ was just a boy, but he wasn't a fool. If he squared up with this boy, he would lose. The kid had a size advantage over CJ but CJ has stamina. The kid couldn't land a punch on CJ if he tried, and with every swing, his frustrations grew. It only made the boy exert more energy, trying to land one knockout. When CJ found his opening, he threw a punch, connecting with the kid's face. Dodging the kid's counter, he faded him again, landing one on the boy's eye once again. CJ wasn't technical with his attack, but he had sparred with Mo enough times to know how to handle an older kid. He had taken losses fighting Mo to prepare him to give one out when he was tested by an outsider. The crowd erupted in surprise. CJ was the underdog. It was his first fight and everyone expected him to lose. Grown men had big money on his opponent, but CJ wasn't proven to be an easy win. CJ's adrenaline had turned him into a beast and he was executing each punch with precision, completely frustrating the boy. It was obvious he couldn't outswing CJ. But when he delivered a blinding headbutt, C.J. was stunned as he stumbled backwards. Blood leaked from his nose as a ringing filled his ears. C.J. bent over and the kid followed up with a knee to C.J.'s face. Get up! Estes shouted. C.J. was dazed and the blood in his eyes stopped him from seeing well. He scrambled backwards but the kid was coming at him too fast. The kid lifted his foot but C.J. rolled out of his path, barely avoiding the kid's wrath. He struggled to his feet. Swinching his eyes, he wiped the blood away with the back of his hand. The kid swung and CJ dodged left and came back with a hook to the jaw that buckled the boy's legs. CJ kept attacking because he knew if he stopped, the boy would get the best of him. He didn't want to give this kid any opportunity to strike back. CJ kept waiting to hear some type of bell to signify the end, but no one stopped the fight. The kid fell to his knees and CJ punched him. His fists were so sore that with each strike, it felt like his knuckles would break. CJ stopped when he heard the kid yell, I'm done. You're not done, a man in the crowd shouted as he jumped into the pit. He rushed over to the kid and pulled the boy to his feet, only for the kid to fall back to his knees. CJ stood, unsurely, his hands up, ready. The kid wasn't tapping back into the fight, however. The man pushed the boy down onto the ground in disappointment, and CJ finally relaxed as the crowd erupted at the unexpected defeat. C.J. backpedaled, not wanting to take his eyes off the kid. He retreated to Estes, who stood with a proud smirk. He placed a firm hand on C.J.'s shoulder, and they walked through the unruly crowd of men. It was a blood sport. It was a fight to the finish, and C.J. had proven more than anything that he had heart. Estes chuckled to himself as C.J. tore into the meal that his personal chef had made for him. He had certainly earned the dinner. Are you sure you don't want anything else? I tell you, my chef can make you anything in the world and you choose a burger and fries? Estes was amused by CJ's humility. It was honorable and rare. Oh, now you like him because he made you money. CJ chewed sloppily and didn't respond. He had worked out quite an appetite. Estes was surprisingly proud of CJ. The kid wasn't his blood, but he was something special. His grandson Mecca had been a beast. Monroe had been sharp as nails, but they had their faults as well. CJ seemed to possess an inner monster to I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know that this is two black folks writing this, but them writing this about this kid is just... And them dehumanizing this kid is just... Frustrating. Monster. Inner beast. All this kind of stuff. And I know... I know in MMA they probably call each other the beasts and all that kind of stuff. But this kid is seven. And he... Or eight. Eight? Yeah. Eight. And he didn't even know what he was getting into he barely survived they're not talking about the scars or the the cuts or his bloody nose which is probably damaged and broken or anything like that on an eight-year-old they're just talking about how he's a monster he has an inner monster that he brought out when needed like how do you know he's seven or eight sorry he's eight i'm gonna keep saying that because you know i don't know i don't know why maybe because i want to humanize the little kid He's been through bullshit. CJ Cena possessed an inner monster that he brought out when needed, but he had self-control too. He was smart, and most important, he possessed a level head that allowed him to assess a situation before reacting. If Mecca and Monroe had been anything like him, they would both still be alive, Estes thought. If my Sammy had been more like him, Estes stopped the thought. He didn't want to let his thoughts lead him down that path. Nevertheless, he was impressed with CJ. He was young and had no one, yet somehow each time he fell, he landed on his feet. His resilience was remarkable, and the young boy intrigued Estes. The way CJ fought, fearlessly, Estes knew he would make a lot of money by putting CJ in the pit each week. With a bit of training, CJ would be unbeatable. I just closed my eyes and I picture Django Unchained where they were they had Mandingo fighting. That's that's what I picture. Like you're taking somebody and you're forcing them to fight and then when they win you shower them with some sort of praise, but you're reaping all the benefits and all they're getting is pain because they're scared of disappointing you. They're scared of being hurt if they disappoint you. I underestimated you when you first arrived, CJ, admitted. is submitted. This your home now. You have access to anything here. The room that you walked in before, it belonged to my son. He died a long time ago. That's the only place in the house that I asked you to stay away from. Other than that, you have free reign at the place. Should have been of the place, but okay. You have a gift with your hands, CJ. You're young and your instincts are good. I would like to put you back in the pit. You stand to make a lot of money. You can shape your own life, CJ. Every fight you win, I'll put money away for you, in an account that belongs to you. You'll have the best trainers, the best diet. I could turn you into a machine if you let me, Estes said. What do you say? CJ nodded. Working out his anger in the pit had felt good. After the fear had dissolved, he felt liberated. Every punch he threw was about more than just winning. Since he was five years old, he had felt vulnerable. From the day Baraka had taken him from his family, CJ felt powerless and displaced, as if he would never truly be safe anywhere, not even with his family. In the pit, he felt in control. With every blow his hands delivered, he released a bit of the hurt he felt inside. He didn't need to speak about his emotions. He could just fight through them. Okay, CJ agreed. Estes went to the freezer and retrieved a bag of frozen vegetables. He tossed them to CJ. For your hands, Esther said. Get some rest. You went into the pit unprepared today, and you came out victorious. In the morning, you'll train. 916 633 1537, wretchedandratchet at book club on Twitter, Ratchet book club on Facebook, leave a review on Spotify. It only takes like 13 seconds. Leave a review on Podchaser. Copy and paste that in the Good Pods. Copy and paste that in the Apple Podcasts. Uh, you can donate to the show at patreon.com slash simulcast or at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast or on the Good Pods app, there's a tip jar. Thank you to everybody who's been listening. I greatly do appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at y'all later. Peace.